You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. If uh, you've got your Bibles, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm, um, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and uh, we started a couple of weeks ago a study through this letter that Paul is writing to his protege, and um, we've said that it is um, the last written words that we have from Paul. He uh, is in a Roman prison, um, likely a dungeon, and he is awaiting his execution from the emperor, who is Nero at the time. It's said that the last words of a dying man are often his most significant. Uh, The imminent prospect of death has a way of uh, clarifying a man or a woman's thoughts. It it sharpens your focus. One of my favorite stories, there's an old uh, theologian uh, named Thomas uh, Bilney, who's an early 16th century Englishman. Uh, graduated from Cambridge University, and in spite of that, he became a believer. He fell in love with the Lord and, and marveled at how Jesus is presented in the Scriptures. And very much like Luther in his day in Germany, um, Bilney began to speak out against indulgences and the worship of Mary and the worship of the saints. And so he um, w- would say all of the time, I, I, I am about the business of exalting God, uh, not that of the saints. And he called that his credo, which in Latin means his belief. That's the same word we get creeds from. That's my my belief, what God has to say. Well, he was uh, instrumental. He he was the man who actually led another guy named Hugh Latimer, uh, an English reformer, to the Lord. Um, and Latimer tells his story, and he says it this way. He says, Bilney was the instrument whereby God called me to knowledge. For I may thank him next to God for that knowledge that I have in the Word of God. I was an, as obstinate as a papist, as anyone in England was, insomuch that when I should be made Bachelor of Divinity, my whole oration um, went against Philip Melanchthon and all his opinions, which is Luther's sidekick. He said, he said I, I argued all against that. Then Bilney heard me at the time and perceived that I was zealous without knowledge and came to me afterwards in my study and desired me for God's sake to hear his confession. I did so. And to tell the truth, by his confession I learned more than I had in all my years of study. So from that time forward, I began to smell the sweet savor of the Word of God. Years later, Bilney will be burned at the stake, and as Latimer puts it, for God's Word's sake. And as the flames were building around him and uh, burning his flesh, uh, Bilney could be heard crying out two words, Jesus, credo, Jesus, credo, which means it's Jesus that I believe. Well, the New Testament, it doesn't record what the Apostle Paul said in his last moments. 
But this is very likely, as we've said, this is Paul's last written words. And he's writing to his friend, he's writing to his protege, um, this letter, 2 Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of Ephesus, where Paul had spent much time. And Paul knew he was about to die, and, and, and Timothy hears his, his delegate, his ambassador for the gospel, the, the sacred deposit of truth, Paul will say in chapter 1, has been deposited to Timothy. And it's Timothy's turn to turn around and deposit that to faithful stewards who will wish, um, who will one day be counted amongst those in a very real sense. What Paul has to say to Timothy, he has to say with us. It's one long relay from Paul to Timothy to Timothy's generation to the next generation all the way down to our generation, that deposit of truth. And so that's what he's going to be discussing here in 2 Timothy 14 through 26. In some ways, it's this, um, it's, his, it's a creed. It's a, uh, Timothy, this is what you've been uh, charged with. This is what you've been mandated with. This is how you're to lead the church. You're, you're, you're to lead the church in the truth of God's Word and not let the church, not let the people of God swerve to the right or to the left in error. That this firm foundation of what God has spoken would be at the center of our lives. So, so look with me. I'm in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at the last half of it, beginning in verse 14. He, he writes here, it says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So, so to remind them, it's this, it's, this, it's this command, it's in the present tense, it means to, to go on, make this a regular practice of reminding them. And what he's to remind them of is uh, back in verse 8, remember that the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, and he goes on, and then, and then the verses 11 through 13, you have this trustworthy saying, this, this hymn. Remind them of these things. Keep on reminding them of these things. There's this sense that the preaching of God's Word oftentimes is the reminding of people of what they already know. This, this solemn charge. It's the strongest language Paul could use in his charge to Timothy. And here, there's the reminder. So, so you, you, you keep on reminding them, and then the process of reminding them that don't quarrel about words. It's where believers find that distractions, that they, they draw their focus away from what's important and makes them vulnerable to false teachings. Quite literally, it means, listen, keep the, the congregation, keep the people that you're teaching um, from splitting hairs about things. Because it ruins the hearers, it misleads them, it causes harm, and it's the good you think you're doing, you're not doing. And then in verse 15, he says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Anybody in here grow up in Awana's? This is your Awana verse. I remember when we were in Dallas, it was in seminary, my uh, oldest daughter at the time, she, uh, she was three or four years old, 
And uh, she was in Awanas, and she had come home um, from Awanas and had just gotten her jacket and the patches on her, on her little vest thing. And, and uh, our son, who was a fairly uh, young at the time, he was less than a year, he wasn't walking. He was one of those, those uh, walker seats, you know, where you bounce around or they have the wheels on them, they move around, you know. Like, like the pretend walk seat. So he's in there, and she comes in after Awana's that Wednesday evening, and she walks straight up to him and points her finger right in his face and says, Jay, I'm a cubby, and you're a sinner. <laughs> and he's, he's never been the same since. <laughs> the word present here, present yourself. It means genuine on the basis of being tested, tried and true. A worker, one who, who labors, who works hard on what matters. Timothy, do this. This is how you keep from being ashamed. He already talked about shame in chapter 1. Paul's providing a structure. How do you keep yourself from shame? Which is the negative of, the opposite of, how do you, how do you keep yourself strong and, 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 and have, know the power of Christ and, 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 and walk and speak and live mightily and, and not be ashamed. And he says it this way, by rightly handling the word of truth, God's word. This rightly handling is a word, um, orthotomeo. Um, it's not where we get the word tomato from, but ortho, orthodox, it, it means straight, true, tomato means to cut, and in some ways what he's saying is, listen, Timothy, here's what I want you to do, he, here's, here's the pattern for believers to rightly handle the word of God, to, to, to cut a straight path with the word of God, it, so it, it's like the image is like this, you know, when, you, when, you, when they go to make a, a, a freeway or they go to build a new road, they have to, they have to cut the, uh, the, the land, they have to cut down the trees, they have to make the path a way that's straight for the road to go on. C cut a path, Timothy. This is how you live the Christian life. You, you cut a straight path by rightly dividing the Word of God, by, by, by hearing it and, 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 by, and by doing it. Good workman, he's saying, is true to Scripture. He doesn't falsify it. He doesn't try to confuse people. In Acts chapter 13, there was a sorcerer, um, um, uh, Elymas. And the, and the indictment was he was making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. See, what he's saying here to Timothy is, look, handle the Word with such care that Timothy, one, you'd stay on the path, and, and the people of God, the people of God's Word would stay on the path. They'd, they'd keep to the highway, and avoiding the, the exit ramps, make it easy for others to follow. That's what he's saying. Now, in that same breath, look at what he says in 16 through 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. 
and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are uh, Hymenaeus and uh, Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already happened, and they're upsetting the faith of some. So, so in verse 16, so avoid godless chatter. There, there, there are people that, that listen, you, they, you, you think they're theologians because they have a lot to say, but the problem is they say a lot, but they don't say anything. It's just chatter. It's just noise. It's just arguing. It's just debating. There's, there's no instruction or clarity. It, it, it's, there's no straight path. Because, he says, those who indulge in it, they become more and more ungodly. Some people, they come into your life, and you initially, you're, you know, you're put on the defensive. You know, they, they kind of show up in your life and, and punch you right in the face with, with their thing. And we'll argue about everything. That's godless chatter. They, they don't care about relationship. They don't care about love. They don't care about the truth. They just want you to argue with them, because when you argue with them, it validates what they already believe, which is wrong in the first place. It validates them. This godless chatter, Paul said, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of energy, it can absolutely exhaust you. Not only that, not only that, it will make you more and more ungodly. In verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene. It's an infection. This, it's a nasty business. It gets in the body, just continues throughout the body until what happens? The body dies. Paul will say elsewhere, listen, the, the church is the body of Christ. And in a way, we're a body that once ill teaching comes in or unhealthy or unsound or unloving or unbiblical doctrine, it gets into a church. It, it spreads like a disease throughout the body. It makes people sick. The next thing you know... Everybody's talking about this thing or this issue or this, or this person or this author or this movement. And all of a sudden, nobody's talking about Jesus. Nobody's talking about God's Word. People are, are all caught up on the issues, and it spreads out throughout the church, makes a sickness in the body, and it's sad. Maybe some of you have come from places or no places where bad doctrine gets in, distractions get in, and it corrupts to the point where the church becomes sick. See, Paul says in 1 Timothy, he'll say it again in 2 Timothy, pursue sound doctrine, sound belief, which comes from God's Word. This sound word is a word that means healthy. He's talking here about doctrine that's not healthy because it doesn't lead to, lead to a love for God. It doesn't lead to a love for your, your Christian brother and sister. It doesn't lead to the love of non-Christians around you. It, it doesn't lead to Jesus being glorified in your life. It doesn't do what sound, healthy doctrine is supposed to do for a church. Here's what happens. So God puts the church together Satan, who is the enemy, who he will talk about in this passage, seeks to infiltrate it. And he does it through, through bad teachers and, and through 
issues that distract. And Satan, he doesn't care how he gets into the church body. He just wants to get in. He doesn't care. He wants, he wants to get a little bit of it sick so that it spreads everywhere. In the same way, it doesn't matter if your affection's in your foot or your hand or your eye. If it spreads, the whole body is vulnerable. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm about to say a few things that... Um, so let me just say this. Um, it's very likely I'm going to offend you this morning. And I'm trying really hard to do just that. All right? Everybody in this room, beginning with me, is vulnerable. Every single one of us is vulnerable. And I want you to feel the weight of that. See, the, you could be, I could be the place Satan begins his attack, tries to leverage relationships or friendships and, and lock opportunities to, 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 to enter into the body of Christ, that which would make the body of Christ sick. And sometimes he does it because, you know, we have these... We have these theological systems that we are, um, uh, will we hold so tightly? They keep us from reading the one, reading God's word, hearing God's word. And what happens is sometimes you end up with crazy ideas to fit your system, to fit your theology, to fit, you know, well, this is what I think God is like. And so now everything I read has to fit in to that. See, people believe all kinds of weird things in Christianity. Can we just say that? There's some weird things out there in the name of Christianity, in the name of evangelicalism. But being published by Christian authors and Christian publishing houses... Sold in Christian bookstores? Just because it's in there doesn't mean it's right. See, that's what these guys were doing. They knew the truth. They knew enough of the truth to talk about the truth in the way that it no longer became the truth. That they were, they were being innovative. L listen, I I'm going to tell you, this may come as a Huge surprise to you this morning if you're, if you're here, but the goal at Bethel, my goal is not that we're going to be innovative. I know it surprises you. That, man, you know what? This is the most cutting-edge, relevant thing I've ever seen. It's, it's not. Innovation is another word for heretic. Our goal is to be faithful. So Paul, he provides this case study, this example. So there's Hymenaeus, there's uh, Philetus, and they'd wandered into this heresy about the resurrection. In the process, he says, they upset all these people in the faith that they were, their, their distraction became the distraction of the people around them. In verse 18, he says, listen, they swerved. They, they, um, uh, the, the word is, is for a target. They, they, they missed the mark. They, they deviated. They, um, they didn't cut the straight path. They swerved off the path. They, they missed the mark, the, the Word of God, that's the truth. That's the target. T Timothy, shoot and aim at the target. 
People will either hit the target or they'll miss the target. The word of truth is, is a road. Cut, cut the road through the forest. Make the path straight. Not crooked. As a result of, of what Timothy does, as a result of what these men do, the way they teach, others are effective, whether for good or for bad. If you cut the road straight, that's good for people. If you miss the mark, well, that's bad for people. So this regarding this, this saying the resurrection has already happened. This is instigated by a guy named um, Hymenaeus. We hear from him before in uh, 1 Timothy. Pope Paul writes about him in the first letter to Timothy, warns him about him. And um, he, his buddy back in 1 Timothy was Alexander. He's got a new buddy now, Philetus, and he's teaching this false doctrine. In 1 Timothy, he says, look, I handed him over to Satan so that he might be taught not to blaspheme. He's not teachable. He's infectious. He's ruining people's faith. He's causing problems in this teaching, spreading like gangrene. And everybody's just listening to it. It's getting sick. So he removed him from the church. Now here's the deal. What he's saying is the resurrection had already taken place. But it wasn't really about Christ's resurrection. It, it was, he's saying, listen, the final resurrection. They, they all looked forward to the final resurrection. Hymenaeus is saying, look, the final resurrection already happened. It just happened spiritually to, to all of us. And everything that the resurrection will bring us at the end, it's already brought us now. Things like health and wealth and prosperity and no suffering and no harm. And the whole issue was, hey, look, if Paul, if he just knew the power of the resurrection now in his life, he wouldn't be in prison. He wouldn't be there all alone, cold and in need of a blanket. So he begins to teach this, what I think are some of the very early prosperity gospels. And it was, Paul said, gangrene. It was ruining people's faith. Now, there are all, all kinds of things that end up ruining our faith. So let me ask this question. He's writing about Hymenaeus. He wrote about him in 1 Timothy. He's wrote about him in 2 Timothy. He's not a part of the church anymore, but he's still a problem. So he's still working on the people in the church. And that's what false teachers do. That they leverage any you know, lingering or remaining relationships they have. They try to convert the people to their way of thinking. Then that goes back into the church. That's how Satan works, to poison a church. You know, um, I'll tell you how sometimes you can spot these people. This will sound harsh, and maybe there's an exception to this. But you hear things like, you know what, I just can't find a good church. I can't find a church that has sound doctrine. I can't find a church that teaches the Bible. I, I can't find a church that's good enough for me. So I sit out here. And instead I poison every church that I possibly can because I am right. 
that's usually how the conversation goes in some way or another. I remember when I was in Wichita, Kansas, at uh, the church I was at there. It was called Calvary Bible Church. And there was a guy that would show up periodically, and he, um, I mean, he was a he was a tough-looking guy. Looked a lot like Jason Chandler, okay? You know, just kind of made all his shirts look small, kind of a deal. <laughs> and he would show up, and um, he, inevitably, and I'd see him there, and I would just have this dread that would fall over me. And, and every now and then, he would stand up while I was preaching, which then I was 33 years old. Now I'm 47 years old. I didn't know how to handle it then. I'd be a little better today, just in case you're getting an idea, all right? <laughs> but he'd stand up and he'd hold this Bible up in his hand. And it turns out it was, a, it was a King James Bible, but not any King James Bible. It was the 1611 King James Bible, the one Paul read. You say, well, listen, I just was confused here. You said you're a Bible church, but you're not preaching from the Bible. Because this is the Bible. And every time he'd show up, he'd come bring me a 1611 King James Bible. So I sure hope you quit teaching out of that, that pagan, heretical book you're teaching out of. Teach out of this. And I had a stack of 1611 King James Bibles in my office. That's, that's some of what Paul's talking about here. Let me, let me bring it a little closer. We were talking about this Tuesday morning at our men's Bible study, and the topic came up. We've been studying through the parables of Jesus on Tuesday mornings, and the topic came up about end times because Jesus won some of the parables in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 12, and it, he, he's, he's talking about the end. He's talking about in times, and we were reflecting on, listen, you know, I remember back in the, in the 70s, I grew up in a church during the era of Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. Anybody read that book? It's not a bad book. And, 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 and so I want to be careful what I'm saying here. This, I, I'm not saying this is doctrine that's wrong. But, but let me tell you what it ended up happening. So it's good to talk about, it's good to teach on the end times. Jesus does it often, as do many of the biblical writers. And the biblical writers, along with Jesus, when they talk about the end times, it's with this view of you know, being prepared and, 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 and um, uh, being a good steward of what it is that you've been entrusted with here and now. And it's a warning to people that don't believe. And as a warning, it's a caution. So don't be so wrapped up in all the things of this world and forget that this isn't all there is. Don't forget there's another chapter of this eternal story when this chapter comes to a close. That's the, the purpose. The, the biblical writers, that they're not engaging in speculation for the sake of speculation. It's not one's position on when the rapture occurs that defines who's in or who's out or who's right or who's wrong. The fact that you're hoping in the coming of Jesus, the, the resurrection of the saints to new bodies, the age to come, the eternal judgment, the reward of the saints, all of this. That's the theology of the end times that believers affirm and, and informs our, our life, our new life. 
as new creations. That theology, that theology in the first century, that Jesus was coming back, there was going to be a resurrection. This isn't all there is. That's what marked you out as a believer. He died, he was buried, he rose again, so we'll rise again. In the 70s, you know, you look back and, listen, it wasn't with ill motive. It was guys that were deeply concerned with and working hard and desiring to rightly interpret God's Word. But there was a moment in this history where, where I think we got lost in the details. Believers that got sidetracked and distracted by interpretive details and they forgot the context of the text of the original author's intent for presenting in-time instruction, but we, we, we all felt good because we could defend a certain position or argue for the correctness of our interpretation. All the while, I think, the world pressed on around us and became more and more caught up in the extravagance and materialism of the 80s, the very thing the end-times passages were warning us against. Does that make sense? Oh, it's easy to get distracted. Notice verse 19. All right, that's one half of you that I have offended. Just wait. If you're sitting here thinking, what? That didn't offend me. All right. Uh, verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So, so I, I love He says, but, but God's firm foundation, it's, it stands. You know what that firm foundation is? It's what God has revealed. And in some ways, you say, look, the church is going to be okay. It's, it's going to be okay. Look, there's a lot of false teachers. There is. In our day, there's a lot. In their day, there was a lot. But the Lord, He knows who's His. He knows who, who, who isn't. And the foundation of the church is Jesus, the ultimate revelation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that foundation is firm. It is secure. And those who who do belong to the Lord, they turn their backs on the wickedness, that they, they walk away from it. And here's, look, it's not just moral wickedness. It totally is moral wickedness, but it's even more than that. He's likely referring to the, not just morally, our behavior, he's referring to that, but he's also referring about the things we think about, our, our minds, the, 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 the thoughts about God. There's a theological wickedness that we can get trapped. You, you know, somebody's saying, you're just telling me something about God that's not biblical. You're telling me things about life that, life with God that aren't biblical. So we as believers say, you know what, we've got to be discerning. We turn our back on that. That means you don't read every book there is. You don't get caught up in every website there is. You read good books, but not every book. There's some things that we need to, as believers, just say, you know what? It's not, God, not a good use of my time, not a good use of my energy. 
that person, that book, that idea that's... You know, we, listen, we want to love Jesus. We want to study God's Word. We want to help other people study God's Word and love Jesus. And there, is thing, there are things out there that distract us from that. There are things out there that are gangrene. There are things out there that cause a sickness in the body of Christ. We live in a culture that doesn't believe that there's theological error or wickedness. It, it believes, you know what it believes in? Perspective. So you wouldn't say, well, that's a good perspective or that's a bad perspective. You say everybody's got their own opinion, their own take, their own spin, their own perspective, their own interpretation, their own hermeneutic, which is the way in which you study God's Word, their own angle. Who's to say what's right or what's wrong? Well, as a, as a Christian, you have to for your own walk with God. And you have to say, you know what, this is a, this is a good teacher, this is a good teaching. I, I learned from them that that helps me understand who God is more and who I am rightly. Or this is a, a bad teacher, so I turn my back on that. You have to be a discerning person. So I want to talk about this for a second. I want to talk about the book, Jesus Calling. The, the last time I called something out was Rob Bell, and I got a bunch of emails about it. Um, so if you want to email me, that's fine. Um, I'm, uh, Fritz at Bethelbible.com. So I take my cue from Tim Challies, who's a, a guy, a believer, a thoughtful, discerning guy. And um, he says all of this uh, better than I could, so I want, to, uh, I want to share with you this and know that I'm in full agreement. Sarah Young's Jesus Calling is a phenomenon that shows no signs of slowing down. He, he says, according to the publisher Thomas Nelson, it continues to grow in units sold each year since it was released and it surpassed 15 million copies sold. He talks about 10 reasons why uh, we should be concerned with it, 10 serious problems with it. I'm just going to give you three. One, she claims to speak for God. But far and away, he says, the most troubling aspect of the book is the very premise that Sarah Young hears from Jesus and then dutifully brings the messages to her readers. Jesus' calling makes the boldest, gutsiest, and to my mind, most arrogant claim of any book ever to be considered Christian. The publisher describes the book this way. After many years of writing her own words in her prayer journal, missionary Sarah Young decided to be more attentive to the Savior's voice and begin listening for what he was saying. So with pen in hand, she embarked on a journey that forever changed her and many others around her. In these powerful passages, uh, in these powerful pages are words and scriptures Jesus lovingly laid on her heart, words of reassurance, comfort, and hope, words that have made her increasingly aware of his presence and allowed her to enjoy his peace. There is no way to avoid the claim that she's making is a divine revelation. A claim that raises questions and concerns, not the least of which 
is the doctrine of Scripture alone, which tells us the Bible and the Bible alone is a sufficient guide for matters of faith of practice. Secondly, he says, she proclaims the insufficiency of the Bible. Jesus' calling only exists because Sarah Young had a deep desire in her heart to hear from God outside of the Bible. In the introduction, she describes the book's Genesis. I began to wonder if I, if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Paul would answer that with 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. For teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, the man of God, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Biblically, there's no category for what she provides as the heart and soul of her book. Finally, the seventh one or the third one, it's his seventh one. Her emphasis does not match the Bible's. Young's emphasis in Jesus' calling is markedly different than the emphasis of the Bible. For example, she speaks seldom of sin and repentance, even less of Christ's work on the cross. Michael Horton, another guy, says, in terms of content, the message is reducible to one point. Trust me more in daily dependence, and you'll enjoy my present. While this is not necessarily unbiblical or inappropriate, it hardly matches the thrust of the Bible, which always pushes toward and flows from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes 61 pages to mention Christ dying for sins. 232 pages um, to, for the next reference of Christ. Even the December readings focus on general presence of Jesus in our hearts daily without mentioning or anchoring it in Jesus' person or work in history. James Montgomery Boyce said, The real battle in our times would be not the inerrancy or infallibility of Scripture, but its sufficiency. Are we going to rely on the Bible, or will we continue to long for other revelation? We must be discerning. God's foundation is firm. He goes on in verse 20. Paul writes to Timothy, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what's dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for, for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. But when Paul's talking about the two sets of vessels, he, he's He's calling back to, he's referring to two sets of teachers that he contrasted in the, you know, the previous period, the good teachers and the bad teachers. The only difference is here he changes the metaphor from good and bad workmen to, to honorable and dishonorable vessels, 
in verse 21, we're to cleanse ourselves from these. So we purge these falsehoods from our mind and the wickedness from our hearts and our lives. Purity then. Purity of doctrine. Purity in our life is essential to walking with Christ. In verse 22, he said, look, run away from, flee spiritual danger. Run after, pursue spiritual good. Flee from one in order to escape it. Pursue the other in order to attain it. Deny ourselves and follow Christ. We're to put off what belongs to the old life and put on what belongs to the new life. We're to put to death our earthly members. We're to set our mind on heavenly things. We're to crucify the flesh. We're to walk in the Spirit. And in 23, he'll say again, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently endure evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The basic thing Satan does is injects distorted perceptions of yourself, of the world, of God into your heart. It's the main thing he does. It's the reason why in these verses, Paul, you know, this is, I think, the secret of the whole thing. God may grant them repentance to see the truth and escape the snare of the devil. It's, it's It's not a magic formula, it's not a book you're going to pick up off of the bookshelf. To read, that's not, that's not how you deal with the devil. You, 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 you do this by repentance. And repentance, they're like these landmines in your heart and in your mind. It is the truth of God's Word. And I'm saying, well, I don't know what we're going to do about Satan here. Satan seems to have a hold. There's a guy named John Nevius. He was a missionary um, He's one of the people who started the great movement of church planting in Korea. Took Korea from being 0.1% of Christianity to 25, 30% um, in in just decades. And he talks about meeting a lot of demon possession on the field and demonic oppression on the field. And he said this, he said, in the early days I used to do hocus pocus. I used to exercise. I used to draw rings around. I used to say in the blood of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And one day... I took out my Bible, and I started reading the Scripture. I just started planting the truth. And boom, boom, boom. Saw an awful lot more wonderful results than before. The power of the truth, of the revealed Word of God that exalts the name of His Son, Jesus brings men and women and children to salvation. I'll end this way. The the great martyrs of the faith, they died, by and large, for their beliefs not for their behavior. To be sure, 
Their behavior conformed to their beliefs for the most part. But they didn't suffer martyrdom because they morally conformed with what's right. They suffered martyrdom because of what they believed about God. The people of the Word, that's you, that's me, that's the church of Jesus. We must be engaged in the pursuit of truth, the right handling of the Word of truth. It means a commitment to the gospel of Jesus. Christ has to be central in our teaching, in our thinking. And listen, if the study of Scripture, if the reading of Scripture does not make us uncomfortable on a fairly regular basis, then we're not really reading and hearing God's Word for what it is. If, if everything you read in the Bible you absolutely agree with, I promise you, you're reading it wrong. It makes us uncomfortable. It challenges us. It seeks to put us to death so we can be... So the Holy Spirit brings a new life into us. We say these are Paul's dying words. What are your dying words? What will be the gasping confession of a believer that's not ashamed. Thomas Bilney's last words, Jesus, credo, I believe. That's Paul's hope for Timothy and the church that Timothy leads and every church for the last 2,000 years, including ours. Where do you go for truth? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we come to you. I thank you for these.